Hi, everyone. It's so nice to be up here. Um, I've had a couple people tell me this year that our conference is getting better looking. I don't know, <laughs> it, through the years. So I have to say, it's a really cheery and all these faces out there. It's a great looking, it's a great looking crowd. Um, uh, so uh, thanks to Johanna for a lovely introduction. As you all know, Transom has been blogging this year and they've been doing this the past couple of years. And after the conference last year, there was a really interesting dialogue that got started on Transom and a lot of people pitched in and it's sort of centered around this idea of international radio, American radio, what were the differences, what were the similarities, why were the differences, why were the similarities. And uh, what came of this was a, some, a lot of requests for more, uh, more international work to be played here. And every year we've tried to introduce like our international guest, and they do a panel usually by themselves up here presenting something in particular. Um, so this year with the fifth anniversary, we thought we would take a step further in that direction and bring several people to talk about all kinds of radio from around the world rather than just one, one country or one certain style. So that was the genesis of this project. We really listened to what, or this panel, that we really listened to suggestions that people gave us. And of course, we were really excited to, um, to invite more people to come overseas and join us. Uh, so that's why we're here. And as Johanna said, I met a lot, um, pretty much all of these people except for Tori at the <laughs> Features Conference. I met him probably in a hallway somewhere over at the station when I was getting a tour and hoping, praying I could one day work there. Um, Edwin Brees is to my right, Steve Wadhams to his right, Robin Ravlich from Australia, Steve's from Canada, Edwin's from Belgium and Mr. Tori Malatia on, my, on the end. Um, if you think your ears are tired now, let me tell you, the Features Conference, five days straight of listening, listening, listening. So it's like a radio boot camp. And as Johanna said, it really broke my eardrums the first year. I heard the kind of work I had never heard, and it, it still does every year I go, and I'm just completely thrilled. And I just come back with my, my ears, my head full of ideas and impressions and things I've heard, some of which you're gonna hear a little bit of today. Um, I basically asked everyone to bring a couple clips to play, and we're just gonna we're gonna celebrate the work, talk a little bit about it, and talk about different things about it. Um, I'm gonna just get started by jumping as quickly into tape as possible because, of course, that'll be the really good stuff. Um, Steve Wadhams is gonna start. He's here from Toronto, and he is currently a producer with the show Out Front which uh, it's a, a nice coincidental timing thing because WBEZ just started airing out front on a daily basis. <coughs> and uh, you've heard from Neil earlier, who's also the producer of out front. So Steve, do you wanna just tell us, uh, we're also gonna, I'm also gonna ask everyone to just say a little bit about the organizations they work for because as we all know, radio is structured very differently in most other places than it is here. There's um, federally funded radio versus not state sponsored, but they're gonna, everyone's gonna explain a little bit more about where they work and what they do where they work, and then they're gonna introduce their first clip, and then we'll talk about it. Oh, I might interject one That's more okay. thing. Steve is also the recipient of this year's Audio Luminary Award, so we're doubly, doubly pleased to have him here. Hey, um, thank you. This is Mr. Leonard Brockington speaking in December 1936, outlining uh, to colleagues in educational radio around the world here in Washington, not here in Washington, in Washington, what the CBC was supposed to be. I'll just quote it quickly. Our aim should be the progressive development in the paramount interest of the Canadian listener of a definite national public service. If the radio is not a healing and a reconciling force in our national life, 
it will have failed in its high purpose. If Canadian radio makes no lasting contribution to a better understanding between the so-called French Canadian and the so-called English Canadian, between East and West, between town and country, between those of us who are fortunate enough to enjoy the privilege of labor and those of our fellow citizens who, through no fault of their own, are denied the opportunity, then we shall have faltered in our stewardship. 1936, we obviously he's talking about the Great Depression as well. So we started out as a national public broadcaster, and um, he didn't say why it was started. And quickly, I'll fill you in on that. Um, I hope you don't mind my saying that it was started as a reaction to the flooding across the Canadian border of new American commercial radio signals. Um, Canada, as you know, is a fragile, a large but small fragile country. Most Canadians live within 100 miles of the American border. It really matters what comes across that border. And if you can't talk to yourselves, east and west, not north and south, east and west, right across about 5,000 miles of territory, then you don't have a country. So it's really important. Um, nowadays, we have about eight or 9,000 people working at CBC. Uh, we have a mandate to broadcast in French, English, many native languages, on the internet, etc., etc. Um, what is the CBC's relationship to the national government? We are a federal crown corporation. We get our money through the tax, from the taxpayer, through Parliament every year to fund the CBC. Uh, we're not a state broadcaster. A state broadcaster is an entirely different thing. That is the voice of the government basically telling the people through a radio station. Uh, we are basically trying to project the voice of the people through a radio station using the taxpayer's money. It's a big distinction. Um, so that's, that's that. Um, state radio stations have very different newscasts. If you've ever lived in a third world country, they usually begin, the first item is what the president did that day. The second item is what the next most important person did that day, and so on and so on. There is no real journalism as such, no, not, no independent journalism in, in countries that tend to have state broadcasters. So there you go. That's basically uh, who we are. Um, our radio programs nationally get an audience of around half a million to, for something that's mainstream, news, current affairs, to maybe 50,000 for something that's more niche market, and uh, you know, audiences come and go. We have many local programs, many local stations. There are CBC uh, uh, outlets and, and, and stations right across the country. Toronto is the head of the English language network, and Montreal is the head of the French language network. Okay, did you get that? Uh, let me move on quickly to uh, the sort of radio documentary type stuff that you would hear if you haven't already. Um, we, we suffer in a way from the departmentalization. Um, we meaning those of us that want to take the radio into territory where you can let it off the leash and really let it enjoy itself um, as opposed to the more tighter structure of news and current affairs uh, reporting. Nothing wrong with that, it's just that there's more to life than that. So the money uh, tends to hang around the news, and that's considered the prime mandate. Next down the pecking order, current affairs. And somewhere down in the Cinderella zone is features. And it's, we've never had a standalone features department, to my knowledge, at CBC, except once briefly in the 1980s. That tells you basically the, where, our, where the sort of poor relations, the people that try to do sort of more creative features documentary stuff. So, um, a lot of the, of the documentary 
uh, work that we do, and I've done a lot of this stuff, and there's nothing wrong with it when it's done well, is journalistic documentary making. Meat and Potatoes Radio uh, slightly, are uh, very much concerned with passing on information, uh, which is fine. The journalism is predominant. Somewhat concerned with the, the dramatic form of the storytelling, and not really at all concerned with pushing the envelope in terms of uh, form. So I thought I would just play you, uh, just so that you hear what I'm talking about, a short clip from a documentary that's very, very typical. Um, the uh, Canadian reporter has gone back to his hometown in India, uh, Hyderabad, which has become the uh, center of India's uh, emerging high-tech industry, and it's, and it's earned itself the nickname Cyberabad. So he's gone back to his hometown to try to do a portrait of, uh, of this emerging, uh, ch this change rather, in, in Hyderabad. So here's the first minute 20 of that documentary. It's a dimly lit little store in the old city of Hyderabad. Four wiry men and three little boys are hunched over with their backs to the sweat-stained walls. They're working at a centuries-old trade, beating pieces of silver between layers of goatskin to turn it into thin, thin silver foil. It has to be thin enough to be edible because it will be used as decoration for traditional sweets or in homeopathic medicine. It's a dying trade, says 65-year-old Moin Khan, the store owner. He says his children are mechanics and electricians, and they want their children to work with computers. Hyderabad has progressed much over the last few years, he says, but technology has brought him nothing. But as he says this, he fidgets with a cell phone he's charging in the back of the store. That's where you call if you want to order some of Moin Khan's edible silver foil. So that's it. When was that produced? Uh, that would be late 90s, mid 90s. And that's very typical of something you'd hear it is. It's today one, if you turned on the Pretty well. Channel. It's one scene in a documentary that probably ran about 15, 20 minutes, of which there would be maybe uh, seven or eight scenes. Okay. Thanks. We're going to move on to something very different. But before we do that, I realize we've been tossing this term around that um, while I wouldn't be so brave as to try to define what documentary is, because that would take a whole conference, and we'd all have maybe some different ideas about that, and we're trying to actually expand the de definition and loosen it up so there isn't a one definition of it. I am going to ask my colleague Edwin here to actually define this notion of feature, because we've been talking about it, and um, yeah, it's important that we understand what, what it's meant to be. <clears throat> well, I would like to start to say that radio is perhaps the only medium that can make you blush in the dark. If you realize, in fact, that reading a, to read a book, to look television, to look to your computer, you all need light for that. So, uh, blush in the dark. Now, to come back to your to your uh, to a possible definition, I think in short we could say that uh, radio documentary uh, deals with uh, real stories, real people, but stories told in a fictional way. Uh, uh, 
reality, reality uh, disguised as uh, fiction, using all the, the techniques, the stylistics of radio. There's a rhythm, there are sounds, speech, silence, spoken words, uh, climaxes, anticlimaxes. I hope it was not too long. <laughs> no, no, thank <clears throat> you. Now, now I'd like to, are you done? Yeah, okay. I'm also coming from a schizophrenic country, Belgium. Uh, we have two communities, the Flemish part, I am from the Flemish part, and the southern part. I solved the problem by marrying someone from the French-speaking part. I don't know if it solved the problem of my wife, because my wife married me. So we are also a public radio station uh, since 1935, I think. And like in all public radio stations, I think you have a constant little struggle of power be between your general manager and your board of ad administration. And this board represents, let's say, the political, cultural forces of a country. And uh, in our station, yes, uh, there's often a little, a little struggle of interest. We are very happy to have a very strong uh, general manager, so it means that we, for the moment, we don't suffer for too uh, many political uh, influences. Now to start, before, uh, before I say what I do in this station, I would like to say how I discovered uh, radio and recording. Uh, I bought my first tape recorder, it was a Gründig German TK35, by, uh, in the weekends, working in the local bakery, in the patisserie, and my speciality was to write in, in very nice calligraphy, uh, happy birthday on the cakes, and so on. <laughs> so by collecting <coughs> all this money, I had this tape recorder, and then I started to discover the possibilities of it. So my first dirty tricks were that on, on each Wednesday, midday, came the garbage, uh, it was a tractor, a garbage truck, very, very noisy at that time. We had metal uh, garbage cans. So I recorded the noise of that truck on Wednesday. The next Tuesday, I put my big loudspeaker behind the hatch, and at the exact time that the garbage truck should arrive, uh, I, I broadcast it, if you want, in my street on Tuesday. So you can imagine the panic in the street, all the housewives <laughs> running. And then another trick was we had our, uh, the, the man who delivered, who came with the ice, the ice cream man, he announced himself with a little trumpet. So I recorded it, next day uh, he came in the street. So just one second before he put his trumpet to his lips, I put the sound. <laughs> so you can imagine all the confusion. So, Garbage and ice cream, in fact, I was in the middle of what we needed much more later to make good radio documentaries. Uh, up to the first, the, the first clip, um, I think uh, the big start of radio documentary in Europe, but it will be the same, I think, in the States and in Canada and Australia, was the invention of the portable tape recorder. Can you imagine that suddenly the the, the producer, the reporter, had the possibility to go out of the street and pick up noises and sounds. So uh, all those first documentaries really stressed on uh, the exploration of the magic of sound. And we got a lot of programs. Uh, people started also to, to travel uh, to the North Pole, programs about the Eskimos. And now the one I, uh, we will listen to uh, next excerpt is a program 
about hunting elephants. I know it's not a very noble sport. Hunting elephants in Kenya. It's a program from 1966 by Witold Sadrowski. And I hope you will uh, appreciate the, the great art of storytelling. It's a program full of mystery, darkness, fever, and it's spotting, in fact, the hunter and, his, and the local guide. Uh, you have the text uh, on your chair. Death, uh, death of an elephant. Death of an elephant. Wróciliśmy z obchodu, gdzieś mnie tam objeżdżali, szukali słoni, wrócili do obozu. No i zjedliśmy obiad pod baobabem. Wydaje się, że sam jest pojedynek. No i... Klient został się czytać książkę po obiedzie przy stole. Tam chłodno było w fotelu się i czyta książkę. Tym odwrócony do głosu. Koło tych dwóch namiotów jest, jest kucharz. Akurat zmywa, zmywa garnki po, 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 po obiedzie. Siedzi tyłem znowu do Land Roveru. Także wszystko siedzi tyłem do głosu. No i ja się położyłem przespać się trochę. W pewnej chwili ten kamba jeden, który siedział też koło ognia, wpada do mego namiotu i włazi pod łóżko. Wiesz, te moje łóżka strasznie niskie, ja już zasypiałem. Pcha się pod łóżko, ja patrzę, jakiś holender murzyn pod łóżko mi się pcha. Ja się pytam, co on jest, tylko się zapycha jeszcze dalej do środka. Ja wstaję, patrzę do namiotu, przez, przez te wejście do namiotu patrzę. Ja nie widzę landroweru ani nic, tylko ja widzę skórę słonia. Kucharz siedzi do tych słoni tyłem, może 5 metrów od nich. Śpiewa sobie po, po swojemu i, i popiołem czyści garnek. Ja się wyglądam, patrzę, klient siedzi oparty bardzo, bardzo wygodnie, czyta książkę. Dwa słonie stoją. Pomiędzy moim namiotem a, dwa, a, a dwoma landrowerami. Zdaje się, że pełno musiał wiatr po tych gałęziach baobabu huczyć, że nie słyszały, że ten kucha śpiewa. A on czyści, śpiewa sobie tam coś tego i poleruje te garki. Obok tego dwa słoni. A tak, jakby te słoni się przestraszyły, to żeby one nawet nie chciały nikomu nic zrobić, to, to kogoś rozgniotą jak śliwkę. Teraz. Ekspres w landrowerze w stojaku. 
a ja z tej strony słonie jestem, a w namiocie nie mam żadnej broni. I tak ładnie, delikatnie przeszły, oczywiście z takim mruczeniem jak tutaj, także już wszyscy w obozie wiedzieli. I klient odłożył książkę i okulary zdjął i zobaczył, co się dzieje. No oczywiście mało mu sztuczna szczęka nie wypadła. Tak się skończyło. Idą w tą stronę pewnie. O, szyt. Powiem ci, jak czasem los czuwa nad takim głupim człowiekiem, który się wybiera na polowanie. No i moja pierwsza safari tutaj, w tym kraju, gdzie na surowców w niektórych miejscach jest zatrzęsienie. Pojechaliśmy w jedno miejsce, które się nazywa Kapukio i u stóp tej góry jest w skale takie zagłębienie tam woda jest. Blisko. Mój pas na bojami strzelba. Kama ona kudzia karybu, tanjua, rysasy na lala, andania, kiti, na hampunduki, ona dziła i kołapi. Ja jej mówię, że wiedzieli, gdzie kiedy przynieść naboje i, i ekspresa, jak trzeba będzie. No i... Ja słyszę, jakie żołądki pracują. No i co? Pojechałem ja tam na słonie. Mil zrobiłem w ten dzień. Przyszedłem zmachany, poszedłem spać. Well, I'm really struck by the first sentence. If you've never been in the heart of an African jungle, here's your chance at the top of the transcript, because this is such an indicative time where we realize radio can take you places, right? And so we've just spent a couple minutes in the jungle. Um, I want to tell you a little bit more about Edwin. He's not only investing a lot of time in the young producers across Europe. He's, he's developed a training program for the European Broadcasting Union. He's also a mainstay of the European features community and is directly probably responsible for us uh, becoming part of that community as well. So um, I was wondering if you could tell us on that note just a tiny bit about the beginning of the feature and the person responsible and how it all came to be. Yeah, well, it was strange that uh, about at the same time in the late 60s, uh, people started to make features without knowing knowing from each other. So the, the main countries, perhaps, were uh, Germany with, with Peter Leonard Brown, uh, Poland, Denmark, Belgium, uh, Canada, Australia, and it was the man, Peter Leonard Brown, who brought those people together in the beginning, three, four, five, and this became the International Feature Conference, which has ex exists now for, uh, for 32 years. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the same people come back every year, Leo, Peter Leon. Not, to, not uh, to forget to say that uh, next year the conference will take place in Vienna, and that we intend to uh, spot, to focus on the American feature. So Julie knows that uh, there's a big chance uh, she will come over with lots of American programs to Vienna. 
very thrilled to have that ex experience as well. So send me your best work, please. Um, okay, let's move on to talking to, hearing something from our more familiar ground. Tori is, of course, the general manager of WBEZ Chicago Public Radio. He's been in radio since the early 70s and landed at WBEZ in 1993, has been the general manager since 96. And do you uh, want to? I'm glad you, I'm glad you assured everybody here that uh, in spite of the suit, I do not work for the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> Some of you did. Um, Yes. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about um, a little bit maybe? Well, we all. Well, no. I, let's uh, let's just play this uh, this clip. Okay. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard this piece, but um, this is one I thought we'd start with. Okay. My name is Jim Brazel. I am a chaplain with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Part of my responsibility is being in the death chamber. At the time of execution, I have been with 114 people at the time of their execution. My name is Kenneth Dean. I'm the major at the Huntsville unit. I've participated in and witnessed approximately 120 executions. I'm Michael Grachik, and I'm the correspondent in charge of the Houston Bureau of the Associated Press. I've witnessed approximately 170 executions. I have been a participant in 31 executions. I've witnessed 52 executions. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 115 executions. Approximately 105, 110 executions. 36 or 37 executions. 130 executions. I've witnessed 162 executions by lethal injection in the state of Texas. I'm Jim Willett. I've overseen about 75 executions at the Walls Unit in Huntsville, Texas. I started as a guard here 29 years ago. Each supervisor is assigned a different portion. Like we have a head person, a right arm, left arm, right leg, left leg. And the right leg man will tell him, I need you to hop up on the gurney, lay your head on this end, put your feet on this end. Simultaneously, while he's laying down, the straps are being put across him. I'm Captain Terry Graham. I'm a member of the tie-down team and the execution process. What I do, I will strap the offender's left wrist. And then there are two belts, one that comes across the top of his left shoulder, and then another that goes right straight across his, his abdominal area. Some of them are very calm, some of them are upset, some of them are crying. Some of them have been sweating, some of them will have the smell of anxiety, if you will, of fear. Usually within about 20 seconds, he's completely strapped down, 20 to 30 seconds. I mean, it's down to a fine art. It's basically a, a situation where we just make sure he's secure that he won't be jumping up, that he won't be able to squirm out of the restraints themselves, and that the job can be done, the job being the execution itself. After all the straps are done, they will look at you and they'll say, thank you, and here you've just strapped a man to the table, and they look at you in the eye and they tell you thank you for everything that you've done, and, you know, that's kind of a, a weird feeling. At 612, the executioner a member of my staff whose identity is kept secret, begins to administer the chemicals. This is Public Relations Officer Larry Fitzgerald again. Texas does not use a machine. Some, some states use actual injection machine. We use a syringe that uh, is administered through an IV tube from another room. This is Chaplain Brazel again. The first chemical that's used is a drug called sodium pentothal, okay, and sodium pentothal is the same chemical that they use on you whenever you're going to have surgery, and it works very quick. I know that at times they, they know when it's happening to them. 
One in particular I can remember, he said, I can taste it. Had one man who wanted to sing Silent Night. He made his final statement, and then after the warden gave the signal, he started singing Silent Night. And he got to the part, round to yon virgin mother and child. And just as he got child out was the last word. Uh, the reason I chose this piece is because um, the way pieces work in general is um, identification. That we identify either positively or negatively with what is going on, but we're connected in some way. There, there is a relationship between the listener and the storyteller or the storytellers. Um, and this is at first, what might seem to be a rather curious way of going about exploring an issue like the death penalty because a traditional journalistic way of looking at this would be to talk to either a victim, a criminal, an advocate for the abolition of the death penalty, a, um, you know, a death penalty proponent. Um, one would struggle against opposing ways of seeing, which is a a, a journalistic kind of uh, tension that always exists, as John Hartley would say. Here, David Isay, who produced this piece, um, chooses people who actually are not connected to the reason that someone is being put to death. Rather, they're just doing their jobs. They're, they're doing what they need to do to fulfill the requirements of the law. And so they have this kind of disconnected way of talking about it, yet of course very connected, very, very intimate, they understand it quite well, but they have, the, the, in, the interest they have is not as somebody who's had something happen to them or a loved one die or something like that, but just as someone who's doing their job. And I thought about it the other day, these are the people actually with whom we can identify because most of us probably will not be executed or victims of a crime that is capital that leads to someone's execution, or et cetera, we will be citizens like these people. These people are actively fulfilling the law because it has to be done, whether it's right or wrong. That's what they do. And we passively hear about these executions, read about these executions, and let them happen because it's the law. It has to be done. Powerful point of view in this piece, and I think very unusual, really fine work. Right, and we were talking a little bit about, like, well, what sort of typifies an American style? And certainly hearing from voices that you may not normally hear from on an issue is, is one thing that David Isay especially does so well with the StoryCorps project is maybe the, the Uber example of this, just inviting people to come in and tell their stories. So thank you, Tori. That piece is witness to an execution for anyone who doesn't know. And when, did, when was it produced? Late 90s? Uh, yeah, well, yes, I think so. And actually, um, this is just a very quick thing. Um, this piece was almost, this piece almost never reached a national audience. If it wasn't for Dean Capello, it would not have. Uh, David, this was before StoryCorps, could not get any national distributor to carry this piece. And he approached uh, Dean at WNYC, who then did the thing that radio stations, I think, should do more often. He just called his friends. <laughs> And Dean called me, called uh, Joanne Wallace, called a bunch of people and said, hey, let's all run this thing on such and such a date. It's really good. Um, and that really says something, I think, about 
how often we have to remember that we are a decentralized system, which can be our strength. And in this case, we saved a great work uh, that has since, of course, heard, been heard many times all over the place. Thanks. All right, let's move to the other side of the world and hear from some Australia work. Uh, Robin Ravelich is actually directly or indirectly responsible for a lot of the work that we've encountered through Third Coast, whether you've heard it on stage or it's been given an award or been featured on our website. She's the executive producer of the Radiophonic Unit. I didn't know what Radiophonic was either, so I'm going to ask her to uh, describe that term and tell us a little bit about the ABC, what you're doing now, and then introduce the piece you're going to play. Um, in a way, Edwin has already opened the territory of what might be radiophonic in the way he's spoken about the feature, because radiophonic means an original creation for radio. So it's a piece that distinguishes itself from something that might be a feature for a newspaper or something that could be performed on the stage. I could interview Steve and Tori could narrate it and Edwin could sing. Um, and that would not really be a radiophonic uh, feature. So uh, a contemporary radiophonic feature is one that makes full use of the uh, elements available to us in the radio medium, and particularly these days would make extensive use of sound engineering and all the techniques of studio production that allow us to compress time and space and to create layers of sound and music and voice uh, and move through a mass of material in a, a very economical way and very thoughtful way. A radiophonic piece doesn't have to be complicated. It can be as simple as a single human voice written and speaking for the radio in a unique way that depends on the radio to transmit its message. But uh, we tend to use radiophonic to talk about radio that is almost composed, that is very thoughtfully arranged, is multi-layered, multi-meaning, and um, it, it, I think we maybe are the only radiophonic unit, but I did hear someone here speaking about teaching radiophonic uh, work, and that was very interesting for me. I reside within a department called Performance and Features at ABC, and uh, it perhaps is a renaming of an old idea of a drama and features department, so we don't come out of a journalistic stream. Our news and current affairs division is something quite specific. Uh, and reports and discusses contemporary uh, issues. My department essentially creates for uh, a network called Radio National, and again, this sounds like state radio, but you know, in some countries to say you're Radio National would be a bad thing. But there's a sense of trying to connect a very vast country, and that's what radio has meant in Australia. We followed very much a BBC model, the ABC, receives its money from uh, the government at arm's length. It has its own board of directors and own management. And it has a television network, a digital channel, four national networks, including a youth network, a classical music network, Radio National and National News Radio, as well as a very extensive new media online division, which has um, exploded in the last 10 years. And of course, we are podcasting and doing all of those things now. Um, so I think just what I would say about this idea of drama and features and performance and features, that the kind of feature work on our network comes out of a hybridization of traditions and a, a, a sort of 
In Australia, we like to improvise and we like to break rules, and it may have something to do with having a convict past or whatever. <laughs> we, we began in that BBC way, but we, you know, and the news announcers used to wear dinner jackets, and we were, when I was employed, I was a broadcast officer in the commission. So we all had sort of very militaristic civil service sounding names, and somehow a revolution just you know, occurred in the 1970s and 80s, and a whole generation of new people came into the radio who were excited about transporting um, you know, material, transporting ourselves as listeners into new worlds. And you know, I grew up in a very remote part of Australia in a place called Broken Hill in the middle of nowhere. And to have heard something, as I didn't, but if I had the chance of, to hear Death of an Elephant, I would have been blown away. It would have just been so magical. But the magic of radio is what I'm interested in and my colleagues. And the piece I've chosen today to start is um, by Jane Ullman and Philip Ullman. And I think what it is distinctive um, about in its sense of Australia is the beauty of its sound recordings and its attention to place and to voice. And uh, I hope you'll be transported somewhere rather strange, not quite Africa, but to uh, another remote part of Australia. <laughs> Leaving. been sad. Leaving, but always coming back. Adam Inaby. Adam Inaby. The Snowy Mountains Highway. Tantangra Road on the Great Dividing Range. Dust, pepper scent of the bush, Nungar Plain, Nungar Creek, Kelly's Plain, White Daisies, Lake Tantangra, Lake Tantangra, 
my first glimpse of blue through trees. The Murrumbidgee River. On the ridge, dazzling snow gums. And lower down, black sallies. Around the homestead, pines. Well, we go up here all the time. It seems that I've been here for ages, you know. I haven't had any first memories. I've always been here, you know. Always. Yeah, come on. Don't eat that fella. Speck! Don't gobble him up! Come on in. Morning. Morning. Mr. Taylor. Yes, Mr. come Taylor. in. It would have been a lot better when my nana and pop were young. They were the good old days. The New South Wales Gazette, beyond the settled districts. Original lease on the Karangarambla, Thomas O'Rourke. 1851, 35,000 acres. Dad got the position at Coolerman looking after the country there for Campbell in an advertisement in the paper. And we came up, we landed at Coolerman, Christmas Eve, 1908. Coolamine. Coolamine homestead on the Coolamine Plain. Over the chimney was an old single-barrel gun. The barrel was bent on it and it had a bullet stuck in it. I got the bullet out of it when I was a kid and used to load it up and fire it off with a lot of rocks in it. Kicked me in the jaw and I had a swollen jaw. And we got out and we fired a, a flask of powder, which was a silly thing to do, and... Anyhow, we fired round there all day. Mum calling us to come home, no fear. It's just like a war. We loaded her up with stones right at the top and let it go and it barked the trees. Can you give us a sense of, well, the overall length and maybe an average yes. length for the feature? And also, how many of these are produced a year and air during the course of a week? Okay, that's a special program, and it was a pre-Italia winner in either, I think it was 1989, by Jane Ullman and Philip Ullman. It's a program that grows out of a personal situation where Jane was uh, very intimately involved in the story of those people, the elderly people, and had spent her childhood um, visiting there every year and became very attached. They were caretakers of this um, 
upland, highland, alpine uh, area that was now going to be turned over to National Park, and it was the last of their time in that country. So Jane had really spent her life having a, a sense of place and uh, an attachment to Molly and Tom and their circumstance and what they represented, a, a dying Australia, really. Um, and in the late 80s, we had a lot of time to make programs. So it has the luxury of beautifully recorded sound on location. Philip Ullman is an exceptional environmental um, engineer, sound recordist, whose uh, bird recordings are just legendary. Um, so this was a program made with love and care and time. But the truth is, it's a very wise investment because it's a program that stands the test of time. I think when you make a feature like this, um, it can be played over and over. It is, it's a memory, yes, now of something that's gone, but it's a very precious piece of environmental recording as well as of folklore and um, oral history. Um, and there's a, a marvellous way, I think, that Jane... I think this is very distinctive about Australian work, this listing. Our place names are so extraordinary. You know, when you hear her list, Adaminami and, and so on, Karungo, you get a sense of the land speaking. We have, you know, our indigenous people speak of the song lines of the country and all of us believe somehow that the, the naming of the land and, and its places is really important. And it's a very poetic and spare script. So over those beautiful recordings and that more traditional oral history is something quite abstract and compressing, even though you have a great sense of spaciousness of time and the program um, lasts about 55 minutes, yeah. And that's really typical for a feature length between 45 and 50. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and just quickly, how many of those air a week right oh, now? On well, well, now we have, we, we have a program called Radio Eye, which uh, broadcasts a feature of that length every week. Of course, they're not all like that, and we draw on our repertoire. We're not afraid to rebroadcast our programs. The listening, this was made for the listening room. And uh, we draw on that a huge amount of material recorded and broadcast over 16 years of that program's existence as well. So freelancers make programs, staff producers make programs. I think probably they're aiming for 70% um, new programming each year and 30% of rebroadcasting. Okay, thanks. Um, stay with us. Now we're coming back to North America. Um, and you're talking about a sense of place is a really great actual intro segue into the next things that Steve's going to play for us. We're going to the north. That's Canada, the north. Actually, just hearing Robin talk, I, I sort of want to go to Australia and just live there where they respect and promote this stuff. It's so hard. Where I live, uh, I didn't want to give the impression that everything we do uh, in, north, in Canada is totally journalistically bound. Of course it isn't. There have been brave souls all the time who have tried to push the medium, push the medium, push the medium. It's just that we haven't had this sort of institutional support. Um, we're getting it slowly, and we fight for it as best we can. Anyway, um, Julie asked me to think about and bring some radio from Canada, which she said had been either famous or well-loved, uh, or was considered groundbreaking or historically important. So. Uh, um, I would like to play for you uh, three clips, actually, which represent a sort of lineage, a type of strand, um, not typical of what we have on the radio, but certainly influential, um, and certainly for me. Um, um, one of the things about being an immigrant, and you can tell from the way I speak that I didn't 
grow up in Canada. I was born in the UK. But I live, I've lived there since 1974. But it's very sobering and sort of scary when you realize that years before you ever showed up, and, and while you were beavering away trying to do journalistic documentaries, some other people had been doing amazing stuff, and you didn't know about it. One of the reasons why we have conferences, uh, to try and avoid us sort of falling back into pitfalls and reinventing the wheel. I'm talking about a man called Glenn Gould. Some of you may know uh, about Glenn Gould. Um, he was a most famous pianist, uh, a specialist in the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, when Gould was not playing the piano, and when he felt the urge to compose, he, for some reason or other, decided to compose with human speech. Um, he was very interested uh, in juxtaposition, I think. Um, polyphony, many voices, uh, translating that idea from a musical form, i.e. Bach, or any form of music really, to a speech-based radio feature. So what did he do? He's looking for bouncing uh, one idea off another. He's looking to juxtapose opinions against another. He's looking to exploit the, the juxtapositions of tone, of rhythm, um, all these things which you could lump together and under the title of perhaps the name of vocal counterpoint. So I'm going to play you a moment, uh, a first minute or so of uh, his first, what later became known as contrapuntal documentaries. This is the uh, idea of North uh, by Glenn Gould, 1967. That's the first little bit. I flew north from Churchill to Coral Harbor in Southampton Island at the end of September. I was up in the cockpit with the pilot, and I was forever looking out, left and right. And as we flew along the east coast of Hudson's Bay, this flat, flat I don't go, let me say this again, I don't go for this northmanship bit at all. Because it just uh, seemed endless. I don't, uh, we seemed to be going into nowhere. Not those people who do claim that and they the further north farther, we went, farther north and so on. But I see it as a, as a kind of a game, this uh, northmanship bit, with people saying, well, you know, were right, you ever up at the North Pole? You know, and hell, I did a, uh, no, a dog sled trip of 22 days, and the other fellow comes up, well, I did one of 30 days. No, it's, it's very childish. Perhaps they see themselves as more Sure, the north has changed my life. I can't conceive anyone being in close touch with the North, whether he lived there all the time or simply traveled it month after month, year after year. I can't conceive of such a person being really untouched by the North for the rest of his life. When I left in 1965, at least left the job... It goes on like this, as though there's some special merit, some virtue to being in the North, or some special virtue in having been with the primitive people. What special virtue was there in that? So I would guess if you grew up in a large family, you didn't have a pri any problem at all with that. <laughs> but if you didn't grow up in a large family, it could drive you nuts. Um, it's, you can listen to it as you just experienced as music and let it wash over you. You can try and follow the strands of argument, whatever, but uh, it's fairly challenging. And that program ran in its entirety around 50, 50 minutes, not all as dense as that but that was Gould's style um, for what it's worth, and that was a legacy. So Gould died in 1982, and in 1992, when the CBC was uh, putting on a big special 10-year uh, uh, event on the radio, the call went out to, to was there any um, one piece of uh, original radio which would be in the spirit of Gould's counterpoint, contrapuntal ideas. It so happened that um, we had been going through uh, another period of Canadian uh, national angst in terms of the 
interminable French-English divide, uh, and there was genuine fear that the country would break up into its constituent parts, provinces, and so on and so on. So there was, when you hear the next section, the next clip, just bear that in mind, that uh, this fear of uh, the breakup of Canada was real. This is not just an artistic conceit, it was real. Um, anyway, uh, so it so happened that I, I had an, an idea called Counterpoint Canada, a sort of contrapuntal documentary for competing ideas about what Canada is. Um, okay, three people put this together. Uh, it ended up being a 36-minute piece for the music department. The composer uh, was Christos Hatzis. The sound engineer is Lawrence Stevenson, the producer myself. Uh, we called it in the end the idea of Canada and a nod to Glenn Gould. Um, this type of vocal polyphony is different. It actually exploits the new digital technology that was emerging in the early 90s. And although some of what you'll hear sounds as if it's overlapping voices, actually it's linear. Um, the slicing and dicing of the vocal, tech, vocal clips, voice clips, is, very, is sometimes very small and very finely done, chopped, chopped very small. So here is um, a section from the idea of Canada. Je suis moitié moitié. Bon matin, je me suis levé. Un bon matin, je me suis levé. J'entends le rossigne chanter. Si ma tourlure, puis du ra, du ra, du ra, tom, di l'ulam, puis du ra, du ra, tom, di l'ulam. Je suis moitié moitié. Bon matin. My mom is French Canadian. My father is English Canadian. French Canadian. English Canadian. French Canadian. English Canadian. French Canadian. English Canadian. French Canadian. My father is English Canadian. English Canadian. My mother is actually. Also, a quarter native. There are many people like me who are hybrids. There are many people like me who are hybrids. There are many people like me who are hybrids. And where can we feel at home except in a country that is in itself a kind of a hybrid? That's my sense. Marriages, marriages of the province, a marriage of culture myth. has been smashed. This is a country of marriages. covered up our colonialism, we've covered up our anti-French, anti-English feelings. We have been so polite, making me terribly sad, but mad, no. I think it's, it's, it's wonderful to be caring about what's going on. I'm just excited that it's all out there. This is a country of marriages. This country is an American. 
I feel very much that uh, I am an amalgam. The myth rewritten. I am an amalgam. Racism played down in colonialism rewritten. I feel very much that that I have no home. Yet marriage of dependence has been smashed. Mad no. What we lose does actually break up in some marriage and what we lose and mad no. Quarter native. But if you can work through the pain and the what fear we lose. Of, what we lose. of hearing what, what we people lose. have to say. No. And, and the assertion of, 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 of a desire for it. What terribly sad. So what you get is the third, the third marriage, marriage, and that is a marriage of interdependence. And I don't think that we should back away from that. That's a fade. It goes on a little longer. Um, <laughs> the composer, Christos Hatzis, taught uh, composition at the University of Toronto. One of his students in the mid-90s is a young guy called Adam Goddard. And he played that piece, amongst others, to his, to his students, Christos did. And later, when Adam made a piece, which I'll play you a moment, a clip of now, uh, it turned out Adam had said, when he heard it, what you've just heard, now I know what I can do with my grandfather's voice. So uh, here's an excerpt or an edited bit from the piece that came out of that. And you may know it, uh, some of you. It's called The Change in Farming. This piece is called The Change in Farming. And what I did was I recorded you talking about a couple changes in farming. Well, that was when the, that chap was here with the picture. Oh, no, it was quite different from that. No, this is from another recording. Oh, I never had any other recording, did I? Yeah, I came up quite a while back. Oh. This is a long time ago. Oh. And you were talking about the changes in farming. You are talking about how the changes with combining. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And the changes with, uh, yeah. uh, you know, um, artificial insemination and how, how oh, yeah. now cows can produce a lot more milk. And uh, I took the, you know, you have a very musical voice. I don't know whether, what? You, I don't know whether you realize this, but your voice is musical. <laughs> I can't like, sing worth a shit. Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'd like to talk about the change. I'd like to talk about the change. I'd like to talk about the change. The change in front of us. and oats and horsey oats and bananas. Machine, when I went from the binder. Machine, to the combine. You remember that piece? Machine, to the balers, to the silo fillers. Oh, yes. All that big certainly was. All that big change. Now, I don't understand this. Yeah? Repeating myself all over. Yeah. Why, why? Why do I do that? I don't. Uh, That's a musical thing. Is it? Repetition. Oh. Yeah. I wanted to pick up some of the character in your voice. Hmm. Talking about something I didn't know I had. Well, you do. As long as you know what you're doing, that's the main thing. That's right, yeah. Yeah. I'm just a, a guinea pig. <laughs> right? Right, right. But anyway, we can go out to the barn now, eh? I'm Adam Goddard with my grandfather, Henry Haas, in Grimsby, Ontario. Mm. 
So poor, when poor old Henry Hawes heard that on the radio, he didn't know what to make of it, as you can tell. And then the phone lit up, and all you know, these guys would phone him, these ancient men from across, heard you on the radio, Henry, heard you on the radio. And he was, wah, wah, wah. So then he began to take it seriously. And so, Steve, is this indicative of some of the stuff that's coming through on Outfront more? Well, you know, it, yeah, I mean, the, you don't hit the jackpot every time, but uh, yes, uh, we Outfront, we try to vary the diet and find the right form to tell the story as best we can every time, yeah. Let's go back to Tori now and um, hear what he has to say about his next clip. Uh, well, let's just play it. It's, okay. it's from 1989. It is a, a woman, uh, the producer, uh, uh, Dimay Roberts, interviewing her mother. Uh, Dimay is um, half Taiwanese, half American. Her mother is the Taiwanese half. In Taiwanese, Mei Mei means little sister. It's a term of endearment for any little girl. But there are no pictures of my mother as a little girl. No baby pictures, no pictures at all until she was grown up. She was born in 1932, right before World War II, sold by her own parents, not just once, but twice, to work for other people. Her step-parents, she called them. How long ago was it, last time you were in Taiwan? I told you, 25 years. Well, you want to repeat? Try to pretend you haven't told me anything, okay? Just try to pretend that. It'll make it a lot easier. So how come they sold you? I don't know. I'll find out. I scared it say because they they can they cannot take care of me. Was it really sold or was it just adopting? They say they sold. For how much? That's Japanese and twenty yen. Twenty yen? I don't know. They need the money. How'd you feel? I don't have any feel. You don't? Mm -mm. I don't have a feel. I don't have any feelings. Because I don't care. I don't care. Nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm the only human being on this earth who understands everything my mother says in English. The subtleties, the undertones, the quotation marks that underlie her words. People may get every other word, but I hear everything. They may think she's cute when she's angry, sweet when she's manipulative, simple when she is truly devastated. But I understand everything. The words, that is. Why are your fingers so crooked? Your fingers so crooked. I asked that once. Her hands are strong and beautiful with long fingernails, but she can never completely straighten her fingers. My real parents sold me. They were poor. I was two years old in Chinese age. One year old in American time. I was sold twice. Twice I was sold. The first parents were not unkind, were not loving, were not unkind. Again, I was sold. Xinbua in Taiwanese. Xinbua. Adopted daughter-in-law, sold to marry the son in the family. I was 12. Xinbua. They sold her. She's never felt secure, never loved, never happy. She could never show love the way I saw on TV with American families, with words, with physical affection. The only thing I ever wanted to hear from her was, Honey, you're beautiful, and I'm proud of you. I never heard those words. No one said those words to her when she was growing up. Of course, I can never say those words to her. 
and I can never show love in the ways that matter to her, with a sense of devotion, to act as the dutiful Taiwanese daughter. That was not part of me. That uh, the piece, um, which is called Mei Mei, a daughter's song, uh, was produced in 1989 for Soundprint, uh, uh, Oregon um, Arts Commission and the NEA uh, funded it, and as you might expect, uh, it's sort of like the other works we've been hearing uh, lately, this was a, a piece that took a great deal of time to put together. It's, uh, it's musical, it's, it's a composition as well as a, a radio piece. Um, and uh, in, in its entirety, it has a, a, a tremendous power that um, comes, I think, from this uh, lack of continuous forward movement. If you notice, the narrative would move forward, and then, and then she would stop and dwell on something and, and resonate with it for a while. And that happens through the whole piece. Um, and you begin to understand that the things she's resonating um, are things that are crucial to, um, to what makes the piece work at the end. Uh, great, great piece, I think. Uh, if you want to hear the whole piece, it's on the Third Coast website, um, and Dime's website is mediarights.com, or no, firstpersonmedia.org. Um, we have to move right along because time is really running away, so we're going to keep going. Part of the point of this panel was just to play a lot of work so you could just hear examples. Um, we could talk all night long about all this work, but I'd like to just get to all the cuts, so I'm going to uh, move right along. The next clip, uh, we also want to leave you with some memorable audio that may ring in your ears a bit as you walk away, um, take home with you. And so the next clip is actually from a show called The Night Air, which uh, one of their mottos, I believe, is radio for the Google age. It's uh, an ABC program. It's, I won't say fast and dirty, anything but, but it is made quickly. It's broadcast weekly. Each Sunday night there's a 25-minute slot, which is uh, then podcast and is available for you to listen to. And then following the 9 o'clock news at 9.05, 55 minutes, they take a key word each week, uh, and it could be anything. One of them is not Spain. One might be beat. One might be rooms. Can be anything. It's not like a theme, but a key word. And drawing on the available repertoire of existing features from the listening room and Radio Eye, bits of ABC broadcasts from science programs, things from the music library, particularly instructional records, a wild remixes done. And it depends on a very creative sound engineer working part time on this program and a floating producer. The excerpt comes from one edition of The Night Air called The Best of The Night Air, so it's like a sampler and you'll hear something dreamy and something scary. Appropriate <laughs> well, for uh, this time of the year. Scary <coughs> is probably not the right word, but edgy, edgy. <laughs> My mother thought I was afraid of the dark. She reached my lips. But it was never the dark I was afraid of. It's a sun for another country when we are getting night. But it looks dark to us. They're only sparkly. With a thumb resting on the throat. It's the beginning of heaven. You could see the mirror of God. 
Why is it when the night comes, the whole world seems spooky? The fight is dark. It has been a hard day night. I don't. And I have been working like a dog. Do you know that sound? It's a perfect night for it. I don't. It's been a hard day night. I love the dog. I so been sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do. I was afraid of loving it. Will make me feel all right. I can't actually say it, but it's really big. It's huge. It's bigger than the Earth. It's like massive. It's huge. With a thumb on the larynx, she gets the guttural sounds. Been used to like sleeping through the day, and that, that's become my whole journey. Has been the night. Now make your quick decision now, and then we'll make it. I love everything from the you know the lights going on in the city to the harbour to to everything. The way way things look at night to me is magical. Hey, let's go. Make your decision while we're running. That's right. Dogs are croaking and the crickets are croaking. I like the distant trains. Like a dog. And that's all I like about the night. All right. Essence of the Night from Voices of the Night. Welcome to the Best of the Night Air. I'm Lee Redfern, and we've lots to choose from a more or less random selection from the past three years. But there are some themes faces, habits, traffic, and of course, sound. For the Record is a series of confessions of an obsessional sound recordist, written by Russell Stapleton and interpreted by King Gingell. For the record. 14. There was once a sound recordist and a producer who were making a feature about Frankenstein. They needed to recreate the gory sounds of Victor Frankenstein going to the morgue and stealing body parts for his experiments. Rather than go to a butcher's, they decided to buy a raw chicken and cut it up in the studio where they'd have more control. Insisting that it would be a technically demanding task, our recordist quickly retreated into the control room, leaving the producer, eight months pregnant at the time and an attractive shade of green, to flay the poor chook with a variety of implements. 
To this day, she swears the chicken was just a little bit off. And our sound recorder swears you could still smell it through the double glazing and airlocks of the studio. Such a versatile sound. It's been used in programs about chiropractors, contortionists, a serial killer who dismembers her victims, though that was deemed not suitable for broadcast, abattoirs, lions, hip replacement surgeons, jack The links <laughs> to which we radio people will go, <laughs> not for necessarily for authentic sound, but for imaginative sound. And uh, as Russell says, that's been used over and over again. And, uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing. We're always so amazed when we get the entries from the Australians at their miking techniques and just the degree to which you really feel like you're... Those sounds are popping in your ears. This one is no different. Um, our second to last clip is going to be introduced by Edwin, and I, it will be referring to the other transcript that you should have on a chair near you or in your hands. <clears throat> yes, we have been talking about the length, the length of programs, and it, it's quite clear, I think, that uh, a feature or documentary mostly deals with, with processes, processes of, of facts, events, and so on, and you need some time for that. While the normal, what we call reportage or report, it's about what happened, when, and where, I think that the feature stresses mostly on why and how. And perhaps the most interesting question that, as a feature maker, you can put is, how far could it come? How far did it come that this happened? And when something wrong happens in the family, it's the first question. How come? How come? So that's why I think we need time. There's a second thing I talked, uh, I talked about in the beginning about this um, vision of the, the outer world. Now, little by little, people made programs about, let's say, the, the inner world, about what boils and bubbles uh, in society. And if you could compare the structure of society with a chessboard, uh, we mostly, we don't interview in general the kings and the queens, but the simple pounds, the people who undergo decisions by, by others. And let me quote a little bit uh, myself. It's not those um, who want and can get, but rather those who want but can't get, or those who can get but don't want, or those who don't know what they want to get. So. Features, very often the best features I heard are about something very, about something uh, unachieved, unf uh, unfulfilled, unfinished, unfinished. And the good documentary balances on the, on the knife edge of life. The best ones, let us hear the deep uh, basso continuo of melancholy. Not just the nostalgia for what could have been and never was, but also the perception that something could be and perhaps may never happen. Now, the, the last uh, clip is about a program. It's called Every Day Something Disappears. 
and we discovered in Belgium a home for uh, old Alzheimer people. It was quite a typical, typical home in the sense that there were nearly as much nurses as patients, and we, we went to interview the people of the first the first uh, etage, how do you call it? Stage, Stage, the first level. These were the best ones, but because if you got to the second, third, then really you have the plants, people who are. So we finally reduced our interviews to some patients, uh, a therapist, and we added uh, uh, fragments of an author. Uh, it's a book about a pianist who, who gets Alzheimer, and little by little, he's not able anymore to, uh, to transpose what he sees on the score to his hands. So in this excerpt, you will hear a part of, this, of, this, uh, of, of the book. And what was very strange is that a lot of those people, they didn't recognize their own children anymore, but they perfectly remembered the songs of their youth, mostly songs of the 50s. And it was like if the part of the brain who is responsible for for music and poetry and so on, could stand much more longer against the effects of uh, Alzheimer. So the red file of the program, that's always the, the, the problem to, to find the right focus, was in fact music and Alzheimer and what, what happens with this. This is the end scene. Uh, night is going to come and the night sister is uh, visiting each patient and asking please take your socks off and so on. So they become again like, like children. And then we had the tricky question of music and those of you who went to the excellent workshop of Jad will remember that, how far can you go in this. Here the music is, works a little bit like, like a relief like gives a, a, something like compassion, and it is like suddenly the action is frozen, like in the Greek drama, and there's an aparte, and the choir expresses, yes, compassion, uh, despair, and things like that. So this is a three minute, it's the end of the program, everything, uh, every day something disappears. Oh, I'm right. I'm Nog wat eten en wat drinken? Wat hè? Minder tijd. Die heb ik nou niet. Beetje appelsap is ook wel goed. Hè? Wat? Appelsap. <lacht> Met een stuk peperkoek. Silke, zit jij niet moe? Het is toch tijd voor in je bedje te gaan, het is al laat hoor. Slap wel, hè? Dank u.
overal wordt geademd. Ze zijn allemaal gekomen om hier samen voor het laatst te slapen. Wie met wie, dat geeft niet meer. Geen namen, geen gezichten meer. Alleen ademen, zuchten. Allemaal bekenden van hem toen ze nog leefden. Stuk voor stuk. Naam en toenaam. Zij bevindt zich daar ergens tussen. Haar zoeken. Haar hand moeten we zoeken. Zoiets duurt lang. Een heel leven lang duurt dat. Uitademen en zuchten. En steunen. En jammeren. En kreunen. En snurken. Zal haar hand naar je toe komen? Hier. Neem eerst die hand die daar stuurloos in het duister naar haar graait. Pak hem zachtjes vast. Kalmeer hem. Nu hoef je niets meer zelf vast te houden. Zij doet dat voortaan. Zij draagt je. Ik draag je, kleine jongen van me. De hele lange, bange nacht door zal ik je dragen. Tot het weer licht wordt. have literally two or three minutes, but I really wanted to end the panel with a question to the panelists and something actually to you all as well to take with you and think about. Um, why, is, why is this radio important? What does it do for us as producers to make it? And what does it do for our listeners to hear it in under a minute? <laughs> Just something you know, to, to, to think about a little bit. You can. I can't speak yet. It's, it's I can't speak, speak after, after that. I need another 20 seconds. Yes. <laughs> it's something about passion, the passion to have the opportunity to make radio that is going to touch people like that, that is going to endure, that says something to us about our times and um, about underlying things, as, as Edwin says, so, that's so true, to, to get at the heart of things in a way that daily radio or the bread and butter radio that most of us have to do at some stage can't do. The feature transports us and it's memorable. It stays with us. It's not a scratch on the mirror. Uh, and the investment of time that I spoke about before is so meaningful because that will stay and endure. It's worthwhile. I think we all need have, uh, we all have a need to remember and to fix things a little bit and perhaps also certain complicity between all of us, what happens to brothers and sisters, and to have a kind of mirror, in fact, yes. Uh, it's not that complicated, I think. It's what drives a writer to write, or a poet, or a painter to paint. Uh, and me. just one last thing to add, I think there's a chance to speculate about what might be uh, about the future, as well as recording the past and the present. There's an opportuni opportunity to imagine in feature making, and that's very special. I don't know, for me it's just something about a magic room. Um, walking in and just hoping, just realizing that you're in a space, uh, the, the radio audio space where everything is possible if you just have the wit and the imagination to capture something. And whenever I walk into it, i.e. start a new program, I feel hopelessly inadequate but full of hope. <laughs> well, I, I think radio is uh, the only 
private experience that's, that's very public in the sense that um, reading a book is not and watching television is not, but there's a sense of uh, um, going in, uh, becoming quite introspective, enjoying an experience that connects you, I think, with other people who have also had that experience. And I think that uh, you've noticed this as producers, I'm sure, that when people talk to you about the work that they've heard, it's like they have had a moment that you understand that has been shared quite intimately. And that's power that I think has value um, not only for artistic reasons, but also for obviously reasons of extending and serving the community. And that's what we're here for. I'm gonna end with just a request. Um, this just occurred to me today. I'd love to know what the first piece that everyone heard that really stuck with them and really left an impression was. So on your way, journeys home, maybe think about it and email to info at thirdcoastfestival.org. Just maybe we can compile a, a list of these pieces that left their mark in a way that perhaps drew us even into this medium further. Um, so yeah. we're going to make some announcements. And please stick around. We'll explain a little bit about tonight. But thanks to my wonderful panel for saying such things for us. Thank you, Julie, for a terrific job as moderator, too, and for all of you coming from so far away. <laughs>